In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Today, I am asked to make my annual attempt to explicate the doctrine of the Most Holy Trinity. It's good to be back. (laughs) (laughs) I have just invoked with a solemnity enhanced by a six-hour of jet lag the Trinitarian formulation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have accompanied this verbal proclamation with a visual sign, the sign of the cross. What those two things might have to do with one another will require volumes to set forth. As simple signs, despite the impression given of corroboration, they have nothing to do with each other. One is a triangle. One is five points, which are really defining two intersecting lines. Now, the cross we understand, at least we all think we do, and we are all right to differing degrees. The Trinity we do not, cannot understand by definition. Scriptural references to the Trinity are ephemeral and or apocryphal. We are given today three texts from which to work, three wonderful texts about God's glory, with not a direct reference to the Trinity in any one of them. No direct reference to the direct link connecting Father, Son, and Spirit is even attempted. As a theological or even logical concept, the Trinity at times seems to have more to do with Aristotelian metaphysics than with modern mathematics. Yet it is there everywhere. It is there in the liturgy. It is the first phrase we hear, the whole creed hangs upon it as does the final blessing. It is there somewhere, everywhere, in the texts of Holy Scripture, waiting to be drawn or dragged out or imposed onto or into it by force or sleight of hand. So, once again, in fear and trembling, we make this attempt, hoping to draw something out by reverence for the holy word of the holy God. By way of closing this opening remark, which are only here, by the way, so far all this has been to do is to reacquaint you with the sound of my voice. (laughs) Anyhow, the hard study of the Trinity is one of the three tasks I have set myself during my time in the UK. The other two, bracket these, are to come to terms with the essential Englishness, not northernness, not even Britishness, but the essential Englishness of Anglicanism, which is something we can tease out, and to start on a season-long, maybe lifelong, re-engagement with the book of Proverbs. Well, that's what's ahead. I keep uh, returning to the task at hand, and the collect lays it out for us. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given us grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the Trinity. Keep us steadfast in this faith. Now, what is faith? I have a nice new definition from Hans Urs von Balthasar. One sentence. Christian faith is nothing other 
than allowing oneself to receive what is bestowed by the God who, in his essence, is love and surrender. Let me say that again. It's very dense, and it's the spine of what I'm trying to do, I pray. Christian faith is allowing, permitting oneself to receive, to have placed in one's hands or in one's soul, what is bestowed by the God who in his essence is love, yes, and surrender. Yes, interesting. Well, let's follow through. Faith is the gift of receiving, of getting hold of something, maybe, getting hold of it, getting a grip on something, or getting something, even just getting it, if you get it. No, right away we're being told faith is not something we speak of in that strong sense of grasping. May grasp us, that's a different thing. Receiving? No, not even that. It's a matter of allowing oneself to receive, a kind of preconditioning. Well, let's start with that. A man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night and says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs, Sinaia, that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus has discerned that Jesus is up to something, that there is more to Jesus than meets the eye, that what he is doing is not just doing, but that his doings have significance beyond the doing of the deeds. They are signs. Now, Let's define a sign. Best definition I've heard, a sign is something that tells us something about something. <laughs> it, it, there, this is a superb definition. By the way, I, I, a sign is something that tells us something about something. First of all, there's a threeness here. A kind of trinity of meaning, if I can tease it out. A sign is some thing. A sign is a thing, a percept. It sits in the outer world. It's made of stuff. It's something we see. It's airwaves being pushed around in some form. This thing in the world around us stimulates within us, or not, or not, a concept a something which is entirely interior, which responds to that something exterior. Something which is interior and yet somehow linked by that response to that thing out there in the world. Motivated by that outer thing which brings whatever it brings forth within. Yet that inner concept is no abstraction but refers in turn to another something, something else which is not there, something else indeed, something transcendent, something which may be utterly beyond direct perception, an invisible reality. So something in front of our eyes or ears stimulates an inner response, but that response in turn is bringing to our mind something else which is not there, is absent. The sign always stands for something else that is not there. 
If ever there's something we need to bear in mind when doing hermeneutics or reading texts, it's that constant process of layering of signification, things always referring to something else. The things you see in this world, then, are either significant, working as a sign, and not as things of themselves. Look out at those trees out there. Name the species. Can't do it. Then there's a level of signification to those trees that is missing. Someone didn't tell us what is that species, what is that species. So we don't see any meaning except a wall of green outside this church. A botanist will see all kinds of things going on. But it's in their mind, and they've learned about that absent reality somewhere else, probably out of a book. So the things you see are either significant, working as a sign, and not as just things in themselves. They're pointing in and then immediately pointing away, or they are not. They're empty of meaning. You either see that something else unseen through the something that you see, or you do not. You remain blind. Nicodemus knows this. This is the point. He knows that something is going on here, something within him that he can't resolve, something in him referring to something beyond the veil of his understanding, that there is more to Jesus than meets the eye and more than Nicodemus' own comfortable conceptual categories can contain. Something more. Jesus answers Nicodemus then. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does that do to Nicodemus' categories? The question jolts him like an electric shock. He stammers. He stumbles. He drops the ball. He drops out of the the dance. He steps back from that door, which has even then begun to open before him. Jesus just lays it on with a kind of cool comfort. You must be born again, born anew. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who has born of the Spirit. Wonderful word from Jesus. It requires a little unpacking. The wind is just white noise to most of us. A signifier without significance. There's no music here, no rhythm of life pounding, ready to explode into action, ready to command our obedience, our active surrender. But when the wind of the Spirit is blowing within us and we hear it, something else is going on again. We come alive, alert. We are ready for something of significance to be revealed. We are ready to look beyond the veil. Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, He hears a message in the sound that's just sound to anyone else. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. It's not where Nicodemus is. Now what blocks Nicodemus' ears and blinds his eyes? Well, Isaiah says what you always say when you are encountering the holy. If you're in any doubt that you're in the presence of holiness, listen to what Isaiah says when the holy God comes into his presence. 
Does he say, hooray, I've been waiting for this. Now I feel fulfilled. This is real. Great to see you, God. Wonderful. I feel alive. No. I feel affirmed. Life has meaning. Now I know who I am. No, no. Listen to what Isaiah says. This is holiness. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The encounter with holiness through our lives. Read the scripture. Read the heroes of the faith. Read the saints. Read Teresa of Avila, Teresa of Lisieux, Teresa of Calcutta. They are all at the same place that Isaiah was. Woe is me, for I am a person of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The consciousness of his own unholiness has filled Nicodemus with fear. It shuddered his heart, darkening all within. Fine, that's step one. It matters not that Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. Jesus' gaze penetrates his heart, searing, burning the impurities within. But what happens to Isaiah? There's this turn. Suddenly he turns to embrace that burning light. He listens into that roaring wind, and he says to the God of holiness, Here I am, Lord. Send me. What is that all about? Why does the world, why do we not all see when the holy God comes to us, both our own unholiness and yet this same holy God's embrace reaching through our darkness. Why? Gil Bailey reflects this. He's talking about Christianity, and he he says that Christianity embraces that from which both religious and irreligious systems alike recoil, the holiness of God. It fills the position left empty by all the others. Nor does this uniquely Christian element negate or neutralize the darkness from which other systems seek refuge. Rather, it illuminates this darkness by holding it up on Golgotha like the serpent Moses held aloft in the desert, whereupon it is bathed in the light of the resurrection and made quite literally unforgettable. The significance of God's presence to us, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, the God of Jesus, the Son, the God of the Holy Spirit, is the way in which light and darkness are brought together. Our darkness is embraced, and then his light pierces it through. The Father in this is the unseen, unseeable, invisible referent, the thing beyond our view, shrouded, in mystery. At times, God is shrouded in darkness. 
but it is from him and in him that the signifier, the son, the perceivable subject is set before us, the visible sign that receives its identity from the Father and gives it to us. And it is not just in the signified, our inner response itself, but in the whole process of signification attending Father, Son, and us, that the Spirit is present and active. God enters into this process of signification. No one has seen God, the Father, but the Son has made him known in his word, in his life. But the Holy Spirit works through it all, tuning and attuning, that giving of the Father to the receiving and giving back of the Son and helping us to be drawn into the midst of this whole exchange of love. So we've spoken of the mystery of the sign, the mystery of faith, and somehow God, by his grace, allowing us to receive faith in that moment of encounter and not recoil and not run away from the darkness and the light. We've referred a little to the love that characterizes this exchange, but Balthazar offers us one more word, surrender. Love is the medium of exchange in all this, God's love for us, making us conscious by his forgiveness. This is what turns the darkness, the fear, into the strength to reach out, the knowledge that God in Christ on the cross has forgiven us that he loves us, and knowing our belovedness by God, by a God who loved us before we did anything to reach out to him, gives us that overflowing of grace, which allows us to extend this love to others and even back to him, the holy God. Giving and receiving, guided, illuminated, correlated by the Holy Spirit, But there is more than love. There is surrender. One more quote from a wonderful Baptist theologian whom I met in Oxford, of all places, as he was made an honorary canon of the Anglican Church. Paul Fides has said a short quote, and I'm almost done. There was a tendency for the God of Scripture to take on the colors of philosophy. God's unchanging faithfulness became an unchanging immobility. And God's moral otherness from the world, his holiness, his apartness, became a philosophical otherness that effectively excluded God from the turmoil of history. Not only did it put God over the horizon, but it put a wall of glass between that God and us. We struggle mightily in our daily lives. When we talk of the love of God, for heaven's sake, how easily we throw that concept around to reconcile this aloof God with the very notion of love, especially when sin clouds our vision and the consciousness of sin inhibits our reach. Yet knowing our belovedness, even as sinners, is the prerequisite for forgiveness, which then paves the way for us to love God and to love others. So God's love for us is one of active presence and intimate relationship. The absent God that this signification process refers to is really cannot be absent at all. 
He is always present in the midst of his creation. He is always present within us. He is always there, even when it is us who are falling out of the dance, who are dropping out of the giving and receiving of love, which is the work of the Trinity. The God we love, the God who loves us, is the one who sets out on the road where hurts will happen, This is the mystery of God's holiness, who chooses to be in places where suffering will be inflicted even upon him. God chooses to be in the way of being injured, just as we do too, and we know that the real love will draw us on a path of surrender such as has drawn him to us, his creatures, a path where we, like him, are permanently open to the suffering that we will be imposed upon us by the ones that we desire, the ones we love most. The ones who hurt us most are the ones we love. And real love, instead of just do-gooding, consists in allowing oneself to be hurt again and again by the one we love and accepting again and again that we are going to hurt the ones we love, whether we like it or not, whether we like it or not, love it or hate it. Forgiveness, then, is the great fuel that turns this whole cycle, this whole exchange around. When suffering does befall us, we can choose it by receiving it then, actively receiving it, taking it then. And that suffering is the precondition for faith. The God of the Trinity, the three in one, is of one essence, not just by love, but by a love that allows and permits suffering as a redemptive force. God suffers as father, pouring out himself to his wayward children. As son, he identifies, takes up solidarity with the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, suffering as they do. And as spirit, he works to unite the two, tuning all our ears to the suffering at the depths of human life and nature, crying out even in the birth pangs of creation, Romans 8. What does all this say then, finally? It's good to be back. (laughs) When we're away from one another, we have time to reflect on the things we want to do and on the things we failed to do. One thing I've learned from our time in the UK is how amazingly vibrant this community is. And I've learned one thing that I think I may have suspected It's that the essence of the church is the life of the community. Put whoever you want up in the pulpit. God will work through them. God will work around them. Thank God, and I'm living proof of that. But when one has a community where God is at work in love and forgiveness, then I can tell you as a sub-shepherd that there is nothing I will not do to protect to guard, to care for, and allow the Holy Spirit to nurture that community. Thanks be to God for you. I say this. Amen.